0: Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation
1: Hello and welcome back. Glad to have you here with us, ready to hit the ground running for another year of developments, news and insight into the world of defence aviation. I'm your host Richard Thomas and coming up in this, the first episode of 2022, We're going to travel back in time a month or so and join Modern Military's Calum Chapman and Joseph Campion, who were in conversation with a former Rafale fighter pilot from France's Marine Nationale, on his experiences of the aircraft and what daily life was like operating from the aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle. Hi, my name's Joseph Campion, and I'm Modern Military Assistant Editor at Key Publishing. Today we have Deputy Editor of Air Force's monthly magazine, Calum Chapman and retired naval lieutenant of the French Navy Pierre-Henri Chouet, Corsain Ate. Today we're going to have an overview of basically how much of an amazing year it has been for Dassault Aviation and its Rafale fighter with multiple export sales to various nations around the world. And then we're going to get a first-hand perspective of flying this amazing multi-role fighter. So I'll hand you over to Calum to give us the overview of how it's been for the French company.
2: Thanks, Joe. The French government and Dassault Aviation will no doubt have been celebrating a very strong and successful year for the Dassault Rafale on the international export market over Christmas. 2021 saw the type secure three new export customers, two of which are located in Europe and the third in the Middle East. Greece kicked things off in January when it formally agreed to acquire 18 examples of the multi-role fighter from France. The first example, a former French Air and Space Force 2 seat Rafale-B was delivered to the Hellenic Air Force during a ceremony at the Dassault Aviation Flight Test Centre in Istras on July 21st. Croatia became the next nation to procure the Rafale on November 25th, when it inked a deal with the French government to purchase 12 second-hand Rafale F-3Rs from France to replace its aging fleet of MiG-21BIS-D UMD fighters under the Multi-Role Fighter Aircraft Programme. The first six are due to be delivered in 2024, with the remaining six following in 2025. This was quickly followed by the signing of a mega, record-breaking contract between the governments of France and the UAE for 80 Rafale F-4s and 12 Airbus Helicopters H-225M Caracols on December 3rd. Reuters reports that this massive deal is worth approximately €17 billion. To make a strong year even stronger, Dassault Aviation announced on May 4th that Egypt had ordered a further 30 examples of the Rafale to supplement the 24 previously delivered airframes. So 2021 has basically doubled the number of export customers that a Rafael has. Obviously, before 2021 started, Egypt, India and Qatar were the only export customers of a type. And that's now been joined by Greece, Croatia and UAE, who are set to essentially adopt the type from the middle of the decade. The sale of these Rafales to these new customers have arguably provided a much-needed boost for the Rafale program, which has suffered from very little export success over the last decade. So essentially, the question I now have is, has 2021 or the events of 2021 kickstarted a second lease of life for the Rafale on the international export market? And I mean, I guess we'll have to see what 2022 brings, especially with countries like Indonesia, considering purchasing the type. And it'll be interesting if more customers jump on board to adopt the highly capable platform. So, on that note, to open with Pierre, what are your thoughts on the Rafael's recent export success? And do you think it's sort of warranted that more countries go for the type?
0: Sure, I, I think it actually makes sense. If you look at the countries that recently signed, there most of them. I say most of them are a former. French aircraft users. So if you look at uh, Egypt, if you look even UAEs, if you look at India, all those countries were legacy clients from the French manufacturer. So it makes sort of sense for them to to switch with a new generation, to switch with a Rafale. So I'm, I'm not that surprised, to be honest.
2: Yeah, and I think it's completely agreeable that obviously you can expect these nations to maybe go French with Their history of with Dassault products, but it'd be interesting to see if more countries such as you know Indonesia, who don't have a a more French sort of produced fighter background, do begin to opt for the type like Croatia has. I think the Croatia deal definitely took a few people by surprise, but um, but yeah, that's that's an overview of the year, Joe. Back to you.
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, obviously, we have some very interesting questions for Pierre, who I'll just throw in there was the. display pilot in 2017 of the Raphael M, the Special White Tiger. Could you just give us a background about yourself, Pierre, how uh, basically from the start to finish of how you got there to fly this uh, very leading uh, machine?
0: Sure. It started in the north of the UK. Uh, my dad was in the French Air Force, but he ended up being an exchange officer in Yorkshire, and News, flying Jet Provost. So when I was very, very young, I used to... My first school actually was on, on on that Royal Air Force base. So I've been around planes my entire life, started flying at 14, joined the Navy, French Navy at 19, right after high school, got selected for planes, got selected for um, an exchange program in the US, got my wings, as we say, uh, and my training qualification on T-45 in the US back in 2010. Came back to France, fly the mighty Super Etendard, day night, um, Ooh, instructor, nice. and then transitioned to the Rafale about a year and a half before the Bataclan terrorist attacks. Uh, got to join the display team as a wingman and then deployed in combat operations uh, in Iraq, 2015-16. Uh, and then when I came back, I was sort of a subject matter expert for the Rafale. And that's pretty much it. Uh, I left after 13 years in the service to fly commercial aircraft, and uh, and that's it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, very interesting, and it's very handy to have you here today, especially with yourself being a subject matter expert on the aircraft we're discussing rather deeply. And another addition to your career was that you deployed into theater with the Rafale. So we're gonna go mega uh, deep into why you think the Rafale is such. An asset in the war zone. So, we're going to go into quite technical uh, stuff here. So, the sensors are very, very uh, high up there with a strong asset of the Rafale. Basically, to a, a novice, how would you explain the sensors of a Rafale, why it's world leading, why it is effective in the war zone, in both the air to ground and air to air domains? Like, what's it like using them? What does it give to you as a pilot in theater, in combat scenarios?
0: The entire aircraft was designed around a rather new for the time concept. That is that all the data gathered by the aircraft was supposed to, to rejoin on the screen, the central screen, and give full essay, full situation awareness to the pilot. So you're going to have information coming from the heat-seeking sensors, from the uh, infrared Mika, from or FOX-2 missiles. So at all time, you have your missiles that are used as sensors and you know what they see on that sensor screen. You have your radar, of course. You have the OSF, so it's like the optronic um, cameras. You have the ECM system. Basically, everything, every sensor of the aircraft, they come together on a single screen, and by looking down at that screen, it, it really gives you full essay. And, and I think that's what makes it so perfect. It's because on that screen, you also have the map. You have perfect picture of what's going on. You also have Link 16, so you know exactly who's who in the goo. You even know the missile state of the other aircraft. So so in a nutshell, the idea is to make it as easy as possible for the pilot to take decisions. So the idea behind the Rafale was let's make an aircraft that is very agile, that is really easy to fly, and that is really here to help the pilot focus on what he should be focusing on which is taking the good decisions in the minimum amount of of time. And I honestly think that it's something they did extremely well. And that is one of the reasons I think why this aircraft is successful right now. It's because it might not be the fastest aircraft. It might not be the more powerful engines. It might not be this, that, that. But if you look at it from a firepod perspective, might not be the best in every single niche, but overall, it's the aircraft that's going to make your life as easy as possible. And in the end, it's the aircraft that's going to enable you to make it back alive with a mission of success. Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's definitely a, a true multi-role platform. And to stick on that multi-role, omni-role, I know Dassault and industry do like to call it omni-role rather than multi-role, but how do the sensors change for, let's say, if you're in an air-to-air setup? Compared to an air-to-ground setup, obviously, can you do that with a flick of a switch in flight? Uh, What differences are there?
0: Yeah, so if we have to switch during a flight, we'll call it a swing-roll mission. So you start maybe air-to-air. You have to sweep the area, get in, get rid of enemy force. Then you switch to -to air-to-ground or air-to-surface, shooting at boats. And then you fight your way back toward your lines. However, however, it is important to say that this aircraft is a platform that can change. And you're going to put, just like in video games, you know, you put different stuff on your characters and you say, oh, I'm going to pick this rifle. I'm going to pick this. And then your weight goes up and then your character isn't running as fast because now he has like 40 pounds on the back. It's exactly the same with a Rafale. So it could be a racehorse, very light, air to air, very slick, very fuel efficient, very fast to accelerate. Or it could be a workhorse with three big fuel tanks with the air-to-ground designation pod plus six bombs. So it really depends on what you want to make out of the mission, out of the aircraft. But what most people, I think, do not really get is that as a nation, as a force, as a leader, as a mission commander, this is something you understand. So you're going to go with, oh, I've got 10 Rafale. I'm going to use four of them in air-to-air role. No fuel tank or just one, slick, maximum missiles, and they're going to be pushing first. And then I'm going to have my air-to-ground Rafales that are going to come in. And those air-to-ground Rafales are going to be heavier, they won't be as agile, all that stuff. So basically, it is the same structure, it is the same aircraft, but you're going to select a specialty for the mission. So yes, you can change role, and it is something that we love to do as fighter pilots. You switch role during the flag, but don't be fooled or don't be foolish. If you want to go, let's say you want to take your Porsche for grocery shopping or to buy a desk or stuff like that, it might not be the best thing. So maybe you want to take your Ram 1500 to do that. But the Rafale, you decide before leaving the garage if you're going to be using it as a Porsche or using it as a Ram 1500. And that's what makes it so special, that's what makes this type of generation special. And yes, the Typhoon is sort of less the same. Other aircraft could be seen as sort of less the same. But now with the F-4 standard, it really pushes the performance and the specialty and the efficiency at another level. And I think that's why we're seeing all those sales. Because now it's not just an aircraft that can do omni-rolls. It's an aircraft that can do multi-type of missions and be among, if not the best, in every single one. New laser tracking device, because, yes, the old one wasn't that fun, the Damocles, I've been in combat with the Damocles. I wouldn't have bought it in 2022 or 2021. But, hey, we know it. So now we have the new version, Talios and all that stuff. So it does make sense. Nowadays, with the F-4, I mean, it's really a new aircraft. It's really something that is pretty competitive. But, again... Don't think it's a it, it's a magic aircraft that's going to transform like a transformer in me. There, it is not uh, yet. It could be, um, but, but it's not the idea behind it. Therefore, buying eighty Rafale makes absolutely sense. Buying ten Rafales, okay, but makes more sense to buy eighty. Buy more. Buy one, get buy one get one. Buy two get two. <laughs> well, staying on that. No Black topic. Friday sales. No Black Friday. Sales.
1: <laughs> staying on that topic of it being an omnirole fighter. Could you finger point or give your opinion on what the Rafale was best at then? Which role did it shine at the most? When you knew you were going to do a swing roll, or you knew you were going up for an air to air dact or a BFM operation, did you think, yeah, I'm going to do better? Oh, than yeah, what, uh, what yeah.
0: Is? BFM BFM is awesome. But once again, it depends on what type of BFM because what we do and what we train for is usually with peacetime constraint. So yeah, if you're like, yeah. oh, I'm going to fly one Rafale. I-, I love to do red air in ACM flight, which means yeah. I'm the only Rafale against two Rafale with a trainer usually. And yeah. if they're not good, you're going to kill both of them. <laughs> so yeah. so I-, I really love flying ACM missions as a red air. I think it was my favorite mission or red air once against yeah. two or a two ship, a leader of two aircraft. And against us, there are like four or six aircraft. Uh, that's a type of mission I really love because the aircraft is so good that if you're good, even if you're outnumbered, you're going you're gonna to kick their butt. What makes the Rafale very good in air-to-air is its ability to change blocks, to change altitude extremely fast, while enabling you to keep a very good situation awareness. So when you're flying, let's say, 100 feet and you climb to 1,500 feet, the ranges change, everything change. And if you go from fifty thousand feet to one hundred feet, or I mean, one hundred was the minimum above the ocean for the navy, so we would go down to that. Your environment change, the range change, the tactics change, but you also have to sort of change your mindset because now the aircraft isn't reacting the same, and and the tactics could be a bit different. But the Rafale really enabled you to change in less than one minute, two minutes max, from high altitude to low altitude, or the opposite, and while enabling you to Keep full situation awareness. And I think what it's tough to understand when we are sitting in our chair is that when you switch from 100 feet to 40,000 feet in less than a minute, climbing at supersonic speed, your aircraft is going to be ish 60 degree nose up and your seat is tilted 30 degree from the flight line of the jet. So you're basically at 90 degree angle from the horizon. So maintaining a say as you're climbing supersonic, going through all the altitudes, making sure not hitting anyone, training wingman or any type of other aircraft, it is not something very easy. And and most countries don't do it because it's such a huge workload spike. It could be seen as dangerous. But the Rafael makes it very safe for you because you really understand who's where before making those changes. You really have perfect situation awareness. So. It makes your life easy, enabling you to go further in terms of tactics, being more aggressive while being safe, which is what we're looking for nowadays because you don't want to break a Rafale for some, uh, in, a stupid reason. So so you still have to make sure you come back with your aircraft.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you flew the Rafale and the naval yeah, variant.
0: Yeah, the best one, single seat. No yeah. wizo, we don't need that. <laughs> yeah, well, why, why don't you need the, the wizard? Because Guzzi's dead. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Uh, R- 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 goose. <laughs> no, we, we actually, uh, from what I've been told, um, joke aside, it's because, you know, in the French Navy carrier, uh, if we had to add like 20 or 30 seat, I mean, rooms and bed for, for other officers, we would have had some issue in terms of knowing where to put them on the boat. So, oh. But also because our decision makers back in the day were coming from single seat aircraft. That were more or less monomission, so for them there was really no understanding. Oh, why would you have to be two? I mean, taking off, following a GCI, and you know, shooting gun is easy. They didn't really, I think, understood the change in terms of tactics and workload as a pilot. But in the end, the pros for single seat is that it's single seat, so it's awesome. Um, the cons <laughs> are. It takes, we like to speak about um, processors for the pilot. That's, that's when I was an instructor, that's the term we used. Uh, and it takes an I-7 or I-9 to fly single seat, all missions with a Rafale from a boat. And sadly, sometimes you have guys, it's not their fault, they have an I-5 and you need an I-7 or a I-9. So those guys uh, could be fire pilots in two seaters. And, and again, no shame on that. It's just, it's a, it's different. Qualities are different and decision-making stuff are different. But uh, flying your aircraft while leading your flight, while with your joystick and everything, guiding a laser bomb after five hours in the aircraft is not something everybody can do. And and thinking everybody can do it would be stupid, if you see what I mean. So you have to select the guys to do it. So in the end, it's more expensive. It's more attrition. It's more difficult. It's more fatigue. It's more training. It's more difficult for the human being. So flying single-seat Rafale is something that is difficult for the staff because there are so many missions you have to be good at. If you don't want to be the weak link in the aircraft, you basically have to work your ass off every single day. Because when you're not improving in air-to-air, you have to improve in air-to-ground, you have to improve in air-to-surface, you have to improve in refueling, you have to improve in reconnaissance, and so on and so on. So that's, I think, the, the difficulty from that single-seat dilemma. <laughs> so to yeah, experience.
1: yeah. Going back to a previous comment about enjoying red air and in kind of the domains of air-to-air training operations, how did the Rafale cope in dissimilar air combat training in the air against uh, the Typhoon, probably its main competitor, against the good old F-16? Or even, did you ever fight against the uh, <laughs> the f thirty five? Did you ever? Uh,
0: no. Uh, I left in 2000. Last flight in the service was uh, September 2017. Didn't get a yeah. chance to dogfight an F thirty five, but again, who wants to dogfight nowadays? Uh, I mean, uh, thinking, oh, I'm better than an F thirty five because I, I can gun him in one circle fight is like, you know, I, I mean, just like I, I don't know if you want to look at the comparison, but hey, I got a cell phone; He makes better pictures than yours. And now you're stuck in the middle of the of the desert, and you don't care about the pictures what you take. Uh, what you care about is being able to to have some, you know, an antenna. And then a cell phone with an antenna would be better than what you're using right now. You don't care about the pictures. Uh, So again, the issue is, when we try to compare new generation aircraft in very specific areas like this, in my opinion, it's losing a little bit the sight of why we buy them, what they're here for. But yet it does make sense at the same time. Um, What I mean is that even an F-35, at the beginning of the next war, he might be within visual range because he might be conducting an interception of the coast of Taiwan, of the coast of Finland, of the I don't know where. And we probably in the West won't be the first one engaging in combat. So that means we'll be the one intercepting and being attacked. Therefore, eh, dogfight is still important. But again, if I'm dogfighting f 35, chances are peacetime we're going to play guns only. Mm-hmm. And then, if we play guns only, it's not really relevant because chances are he will be using his IMM 9x or what they're going to be using in the future, and moving his head around and shooting me just by moving his head around. Something that the Rafa is going to be able to do as well, um, by the way. So again, it's very difficult to to say, "Hey, he's the best fighter." Blah blah blah. It's it's always down to decision making, rules of engagement and what the pilot is going to do, and how the pilot is going to do it, uh, the days that really matters.
1: Yeah, I can see Kalen wanting to get a question about the capability of being able to basically move his head and uh, fire a missile at you. So I'll let him ask that question. He looks raring to go.
2: <laughs> I mean, that, that wasn't my question, unfortunately, Joe. But, uh, oh, yeah, uh,
1: sorry uh, for uh, speculating. I just saw your eyes ping <laughs> up when he said the Rafal will be able to do that.
2: Oh, uh, just, uh, you know, it's always... Good to hear about added capabilities, and I think you know a lot of that technology will be adopted by you know four and a half gen fighters and and stuff like that.
0: Just, just to jump in because I think maybe people might think the Rafale is not as good as what it is. Just to give you an idea of how awesome the Rafale can be nowadays, and and again, how much it depends on the pilot. Not trying to make myself sound awesome on this one, but (laughs) at the end of my career, I was doing a lot of red air and enjoying and wasn't bad at BFM. So once I was flying, dogfighting a guy, part of a bigger mission, and we're very close to each other, but experienced enough to not have to be at 100% in the dogfights to maintain a good advantage on him. So as I'm fighting with him, I've got my wingman that is miles away. And that has his radar on. And he's sharing information from his radar to me. So now as I'm dogfighting at like couple Gs, I'm looking at my screen and I see, thanks to the data coming from the other aircraft, that there is a reinforcement aircraft. The, the guy I'm dogfighting, wingman, is about to show up. So as I'm dogfighting the guy, I'm shooting a missile to the guy coming in as reinforcement without even looking at him. That's as I'm dogfighting, just to give you an idea. And when we, I didn't call it because I was redder. And during the debriefs, the guy was like, oh yeah, I showed up in the... No, dude, you you got killed coming hot on me. Oh, but you were dogfighting. Yes, I was. Doesn't prevent me. You know, it's like in movies, you're like shooting like this, and poof, this one's for you. And you're like, oh, too bad. But just to give you an idea of how much technology enables us to do, yet you need to be able to do it. And to be able to do it, took me like 2,000 hours. Yeah. When I was a young pilot, impossible for me to do that. But then it takes practice. It takes years of training. And, and I think that's that's what's going to make a big difference in the future. It's how, not talented, how trained the crew are going to be at using their equipment because there are so many ways to use it. Just like your computers. How, how many percentage of your Windows capabilities are you using? You know all the key, sh- keyboard shortcuts, all that stuff. I, I don't know most of them. So we're like using like 10% of what Windows can do. And we're like, oh, I can use a computer. And and then you find yourself in front of a guy that's going to do the same task in like 50% of the time because he knows all the shortcuts. So so that's really what I want to say is that the more technologically advanced your aircraft is, the more it's going to create a gap between users depending on their skills of the pilots. But also at the same time, the less it's going to show until D-Day, until combat. Yeah, Because only them are going to really know how they do stuff. And so you can have like a fake army of guys flying F-35. Oh, it's awesome. But then on D-Day, the guys, is they know how to make a like, barrel roll and that stuff, but they don't really know how to push the envelope or to use their system. That's really, I think, where we're going toward is awesome. Ultra technology, but how good are you at doing all those missions? Because it's just too much for your brain. Did you get the yes. proper training? Yes, no. Oh, no, I can't. I don't have time. Yeah, no, that's
1: a very good point. Very good point. Go back to Kailen and then his question.
0: Um, so obviously,
2: going back a couple of answers now, but uh, you mentioned about seeing the missile. You know, obviously, launch and, and tracking that to its target. What What is that like in comparison to other fighters, the Super Etendard that you've flown? You know, being able to see the the missile and follow it to its target and confirm it visually.
0: Oh, I mean, um, being able to. I, I mean, it, it just and there's a world. It has nothing in common. Basically, a Super Etendard, you're finding a couple miles around you. Uh, with the Rafale, you're finding dozens of miles. I won't give you a number, but you're finding far away. But again, with all those modern radar, I think there isn't that much of a difference, I, I think, between, between the competition. Uh, I think Typhoon radar is awesome. I think the F-35 radar is probably awesome. I think the Rafale radar is awesome. It's just that it changed the distance at which we're fighting. That's, that's mainly it. It's changing the way we we can anticipate. And it's also going to change some other tactics I won't be discussing here. <laughs>
2: so,
0: uh, no problem, yeah, no problem. For obvious reasons.
1: Well, uh, yeah. it's been an absolute amazing insight. Um, and to be honest, I wish could keep going on and on as we probably could. But one question I have, and I'm sure our audience wants to know is, do you have any memorable moments in the Rafale that you could share, uh, preferably in the combat theater, maybe a specific mission that you remember very well because of the events that happened within it, or any training exercises?
0: Oh, sure. oh Plenty. Uh, I actually do share on my YouTube channel. I've got channels in English if, if you <laughs> where, where I yeah. speak about some stuff. But um, I think the one that made the most sense to me was, I think it was my first day as a leader. Not my first mission as a leader, but it was the first day I was, uh, it, I was making lieutenants that day. It was a February 1st. So I was switching from Navy to Navy lieutenant, a uh, captain. Uh, so I was like, so flight lieutenant. And then, so I was giving my automatic new rank and I was in charge of two aircraft and uh, we had dropped a bomb. My wingman had dropped um, a GPS guided bomb earlier on the mortar crew and we had uh, seven bombs left pretty close to heading back home. And we got a call on the radio, and, and that call really had an impact on me because I'm a huge Ed Harris fan, like huge. And I'm a huge, you know the movie The Rock? Maybe you're yep. too young. Yeah, The Rock yeah. with Ed Harris and Nicolas Cage. And yep. Ed Harris is, is a Marines recon, so you know, special forces from the Marines. And, uh, and and I get a radio call telling me you've got Marines recon that are um, troops in contact, that are getting ambushed by uh, three snipers. And they need me to show up and get rid of the snipers. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's Adaris on the ground. <laughs> and he needs me to make it back alive. It was like, oh, my God. And, uh, and joke aside, my wingman laser tracking device had, a, had an issue. Sun was coming down. And it ended up being me having to find the guys on the ground, the bad guys on the ground, which were snipers. So they were using like um, heat-seeking stuff to hide themselves. So it wasn't an easy mission. We ended up using me streaming my data to a central to a control zone plus the Marines streaming their small UAV data to the guy and trying to have the images match to know where I should drop my bomb. Just to give you an idea. Uh, while I'm trying to tell the aircraft carrier my new ETA, because they have to get organized, because now I'm running late on schedule. So I had to Come up with a, ooh, I'm gonna, it's gonna take me like uh, 35 minutes ish. Oh, and by the way, I need a tanker. And and doing all that stuff at the same time while trying to save the guys on the ground, knowing that every single second could mean one of the guys getting a 12.7 millimeter bullet in the head. Um, So, a lot of pressure. And by an absolute chain of events, All that went through a a close special force stuff on the ground. And a friend of mine had an air-to-air refueling issue and had to land on that base. So he was at the control center and he was witnessing my closer support mission. And he made it back to the aircraft carrier the next day. So I got to be debriefed by the guys in front of the screen, seeing the UAV, seeing my pod, hearing me on the radio, and seeing where my bomb landed. And it was really a, a unique moment because initially I lost the track of the snipers. Uh, so said, I'm not dropping. And I got yelled at, insulted on the radio. So I came again and uh, managed to get rid of the two bad guys. And then they told me, oh, um, bad guy number three is 100 meters to the south. But I just couldn't see him. So, So, you know, in combat, sometimes you have to take decisions. You have rules of engagement, CDEs, everything is very organized. You don't get to drop bombs like that. And I really had to make a call on whether I should shoot without having what we call PAD or not. And then those are decisions you have to live with. Uh, I took my decision and it ended up being at two meters from the left of the sniper. So <laughs> save the guys on the ground, um, enable them to make it back, Uh, And I think for me, it really had an impression, made an impression because you train your entire career to be in this, in that position. You usually apply in the military to make a difference. You apply as a fighter pilot to make a difference. And and you don't know if in your career at some point, you it's going to be on your shoulders. And the day it arrives and it's on your shoulder, you know it. And you know that's what you've been training for. That's what you've been requesting. That's what your country has been investing for. And now you're going to be judged. And it's good for you because it's just judgments. But for the troops on the ground, it's life and death. So are you able to provide the support you said you will be able to to do? Or are you an uh, uh, un- impostor in French? A con, not a con, but you, you know, a guy that is taking a yeah. spot you shouldn't be using. Um, yeah. So, so, a very interesting point. And that day, I really felt that pressure on my shoulders, really felt like every single second would make a difference, that all my skills would make a different uh, difference. And it ended up being good for the guys on the ground. So I think that's my best memory because I really had to work my ass off, was in close control with the troops on the ground, got yelled at, got pushed to the limit, ended up taking decisions. And, and you don't really control in combat what the outcome is going to be. And luckily for me and for the guys on the ground, were on the right side of the force a day, but uh, it's just, you know, at some point it's down to luck sort of. So, so it's uh, a very good experience because the outcome was very positive that I got properly debriefed and that I got to save Ed Aris.
1: Yeah. 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 In the end, yeah. Now that's uh, enlightening to say the least. Yeah. Very, very interesting perspective, Pierre. I appreciate it. Definitely it definitely
2: sounds like it was a very rewarding career flying the Rafale and the, a super Etinard as well but um, yeah I mean I feel like we could talk about this for hours really
1: yeah yeah we could but uh, no we'll have to uh, call it a day that I'm sure we'll have uh, Pierre back for uh, another episode sometime maybe on the Super Etinard depends if he uh, <laughs> if he will but yeah no thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure thank you Calum and uh, we'll see you all our audience soon well you'll hear us soon
0: <laughs> sure thank you very much <laughs> and fly safe so, guys. fly safe yeah. bye bye Thanks. <laughs> so, you too
1: for our listeners if you'd like to know more about the topics discussed today and all the rest of the news from the air domain please visit the key aero website but for now thanks for tuning in
0: this has been a podcast from key aero your aviation destination remember visit www.key.aero for more of the same thanks for stopping by and we hope to catch up with you again soon